All right, so we're on part four of our uh, five parts here in the first half of church history. Um, we're looking at a, you know, a long stretch of time from AD 70 to the late 1400s in this, this block, and then we'll take two weeks off after this block's done, and we'll do another block of five weeks uh, to do from 1500s through probably the 1900s or so. Um, but yeah, we're, we're working through our... Um, church history in the Middle Ages right now. That's where we're at, is what's called the Middle Ages. Middle Ages take place from about 400 to 500 AD to about 1500. Uh, roughly, it's what historians call the Middle Ages. Um, although, of course, there's, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to that necessarily. Um, but today, we're in the block of time that's in the early 1000s. So, kind of 1,000 to 1,200-ish is where we're at this, this evening. And we're looking at two things tonight, two main things that happened during that 200-year block of time. First is the Great Schism, and the second is the Crusades. So two things that are really, I think, interesting. Um, the Crusades are uh, probably the most famous thing that happens in, in church history, at least in the Middle Ages. So... We're all excited to talk about that. Um, but I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with the Great Schism. So we'll walk through that as well and uh, look at these things. So let's start with that. The first, the first thing is the Great Schism. This happens before the Crusades start. In fact, the Crusades were kind of a, um, almost a follow-up to the Great Schism in some ways. But let's talk about what we mean by the Great Schism. Um, it is, it's what officially happened in... Uh, 1054, it's the year that it officially took place, and it marks the first major split in the history of, of Christianity. And what happened is it separated the Orthodox Church in the East from the Roman Catholic Church in the West. So you got to remember historically where we're at. There's no Protestant Reformation yet. There's only Roman Catholic Church, and then that was all unified as just the church, the Catholic church, um, but the, the great schism <laughs> splits the Eastern church from the Western church in 1054. Um, after the great schism, it, the Eastern churches end up developing over time into three basically denominations, we'd call it, uh, the Eastern Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, and the Russian Orthodox churches, and the Western churches all form into the single Roman Catholic Church. Um, so that's, that's what the Great Schism is in general. It's just the split between East and West. And, um, and so that's, that's what we're, what we're going to be exploring. But when we look back on ancient history like this, and it's so far removed from us, um, we're coming up on, in 30 years, it'll be the thousandth anniversary of the, of the Great Schism. But it's easy for us to forget that things like this don't just happen out of nowhere. They, they actually occur in the real world, and there's real situations, and there's actually things that are happening that lead to this. It wasn't just like one day they woke up and were like, we're not friends anymore, we're going to split. It, it took a long time to get there. So what are the, what are the things that lead to the Great Schism. Let's talk through those things. So instead of just kind of going, boom, this happened, and yeah, it did, um, well, we should probably talk about why it happened and what, what went on. So uh, we got to go way back to kind of get to the beginning uh, of, of all of this was 
Back in the third century, so the year 201 to the year 300, um, the Roman Empire, we saw this in, the, I think, the second week of our class, uh, the Roman Empire was growing so large and it was too difficult to govern by one guy that Emperor Diocletian divides the empire into two domains. He divides it into east and west. And, and then he put over each of those domains two emperors. Um, so basically you had four guys running the empire, two in each, in each half. So you had an Augustus, that was like the head, head emperor, and then you had the, basically the vice president would be called the Caesar. And those four guys, uh, two in each of those domains, east and west, ran the empire until Constantine showed up and was like, you know what, I want it all. And then he did his whole thing, and we talked all about that a couple weeks ago. So we don't need to rehash all that. But the splitting of the empire between east and west is the thing that kind of led to or had ripple effects to ultimately lead to the Great Schism. And that's, um, that's, the, that's the thing. is like unintended consequences that are happening Things happen in a real world. Diocletian had probably no concept. Well, first of all, he wasn't a Christian. He was, uh, he was persecuting the Christians, so he wasn't giving any thought to what would happen to the church at that time in history. But all of these things do lead to this, the split. And one of the initial factors which caused the shifting apart between these two domains was language. Um, so the primary language in the West was Latin, and that's the language that they spoke. And the primary language in the East was Greek. So that's, there's just two very different languages there that are, that are represented in this, in this vast empire. And so the main language of the people in the Eastern Empire was Greek. So naturally their church services were in Greek. And their Bible was in Greek. Now, of course, they had the New Testament written in Greek. But they had to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, and that's what's called the Septuagint. Um, and they, they translated that for their, for their reading and purposes for the Bible. Whereas on the Western side, uh, they spoke Latin, so naturally their church services were in Latin. And they had to translate the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. So they, they, they wrote up the, or translated the Latin Vulgate, is what it's called, um, and so you had this division of languages that started to create differences between the groups of people. So you had kind of a Greek expression of Christianity. You had a Latin expression of Christianity. And what's interesting is that the Latin side of it, from the Roman Catholic perspective, um, the Roman Catholic Church conducted their services in Latin all the way up until the late 1960s. Uh, after the Second Vatican Council they decided to let churches use the language of the people in their services. But up until that, it didn't matter if you spoke English or French or Spanish, your service was in Latin. And, um, and that changed during Vatican II, uh, which I think was a good thing. Obviously, I think that it's good to make sense of what you're doing and not you know, give people who have no clue what the language is that's being spoken, uh, have that be the church. But um, it didn't make everybody happy. And in fact, uh, I was... A couple of years ago, I had to pull this off my phone. Took a picture of, of a vehicle at the Culver's drive through in Anago. I don't know if you can see this, but the bumper sticker says, make the mass Latin again. And uh, <laughs> I took a picture of it because I thought that was hysterical. Um, so I'm like, that guy, it was a young guy. He was like younger than me. And I'm like, 
I wanted to get out and ask him why in the world he wants the Mass in Latin again, but whatever works for him. Um, so Latin was the thing, and there's still Christians, uh, still Catholics at least, that are, that are angry about this, <laughs> the change there. Uh, and that guy was one of them. So anyways, lat, uh, language was a contributing factor to the split between East and West. Uh, secondly, there were geographic and cultural issues at play here too that contribute to the split. Obviously, you're talking about a very large amount of land and a lot of different uh, places. And whenever you have diversity of, of people and places, you're going to have differences of opinion. And so in the, in the East and West, there were basically five regional churches, uh, or, or cities rather, that, that kind of were seats of the church at that point in time. They were, they were all relatively united. They were, uh, there were five bishops although the East called them patriarchs. Um, but there, were, there was the Bishop of Rome, who is uh, the Pope, uh, or is known as the Pope. There was the Bishop of Alexandria. There was uh, Antioch, Constantinople, and Jerusalem. Those were the five kind of main cities in the empire that represented authority for the church. And these five bishops all kind of worked together on making decisions and when to do things. And... Uh, all of them pretty much agreed that the, that the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, was the one that they, was kind of seen as the first among equals, was kind of the lead, lead of these five people, but he didn't possess authority over the others. There was uh, equality and authority. They all had to work together, and, and yet he kind of had this honor. Um, but that's going to lead to some interesting things as well. So you have the differences of language. You have the differences of regional Issues and these five bishops were all kind of going eventually in different directions and uh, just had different per- priorities and perspectives. But in, in addition to that, uh, language and culture and geography, you also have theological differences, and that's where things get really interesting for for the schism. Um, leading up to the schism, there were a number of what we'll call little schisms. Little in quotations because you know it's not that they were little issues or small issues, but they were, um, they were things that were starting to kind of show the cracks between these two regional churches. And uh, all these little schisms take really centuries, hundreds of years over, over a long period of time to ultimately come to a head and break, break the church from one another into two parts. So the first little schism, or so-called little schism, was uh, from uh, 343 to 398, and that was over Arianism, which we explored, I think, was it last week or two weeks ago? I think it was two weeks ago. Arianism was um, a heresy in the early church where they believed, or they denied rather, that Jesus was not God, that he was the first creation of God. And so he didn't have equal authority with God. God the Father was God, and Jesus was the first created being. Um, Though he was important, he wasn't God. And that's obviously, as Christians, we all look at that in just shock that anybody would believe that today. But that's because of the Council of Nicaea coming together, uh, the whole church coming together and sending their, their regional bishops and leaders to hash this out. They fought Arianism. They got, they got that declared a heresy over time. Um, but 
this was something that was rejected by the West and largely or partially at least accepted by the East. So Eastern churches were much more open to Arianism than the Western church. Now, that's not to say that today Eastern Orthodox churches are Arians. They're not. They've declared that a heresy. They've come to their senses. But at this point in time, early on, uh, there was a little bit more receptivity to the idea in the East, while the West firmly rejected it as, as a heresy. So that was the first kind of theological thing that was happening. Another uh, is the Acacian uh, schism. This, was, uh, this had to do with an argument over the nature of the incarnate Christ, specifically whether Jesus had one divine human nature, kind of one nature that was kind of a combination or a mixed up thing between God and man, or two distinct natures, that he was one man who, had, who was both fully God and fully man. And that's what we talked about last week at the Chalcedonian Council, Council of Chalcedon, um, and with the Chalcedonian definition coming down on the side of, nope, we've got one man, Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully man. And again, in the East, there were uh, divisions over that, dis- dis- disagreements theologically over that. And all that happened in the four, 400s to early 500s. Another uh, theological schism was known as the uh, Photian or Phocian uh, schism. I don't know how to pronounce that, but occurred, it occurred in the 9th century. And this wasn't as much over theology as it was over practice and how to actually do things. And so this issued on things like clerical or pastoral celibacy, should pastors be married or not, those kind of questions, fasting, uh, anointing with oil, the procession of the Holy Spirit uh, was, a, was a big issue during this. Um, and so all of that uh, is kind of more cultural and questions of practice um, that, that really just start to kind of form some cracks between the East and the West. Theologically, the, these two churches, they weren't two churches at the time, but these two regions had started to take separate paths uh, and, and part of that was just their, their differences in mindset. So the West generally leans to what is practical, and the East was generally leaning towards more mystical or speculative things. Uh, you have kind of a difference between uh, the West being strongly influenced by Roman law and scholastic theology, um, really heady stuff, whereas the East was more influenced by philosophy and kind of these, these more ethereal things, things that are harder to, to get your head around. And they were just more, yeah, mystical and more just into kind of the emotional side of Christianity. And so you have this, this split just in mindset between East and West, where it's, hey, you know, the Western church is going to go, no, we want to understand these things intellectually. And the East is like, you just don't need to, you just need to feel it. And, and so... There's a, kind of a difference between head and heart there in some ways. Just, and that's just the way those, those two different groups were expressing themselves. Um, I think there's probably a, a proper balance between those things, but that was a factor as well. And so we've already kind of touched on this, but there's these practical and spiritual differences um, between the two, two branches of, of the church. Uh, they disagreed on some things that are like really petty, uh, as well. It wasn't all like sig- hugely significant things. But one of the things they disagreed on was whether to use unleavened bread for communion or leavened bread. Uh, 
And, um, and it's kind of like for us at this point, we're just like, why would we argue about that? Just whatever. But this, this was a thing for them. Um, the Eastern churches used leavened bread, meaning bread with yeast in it. And the Western church did not. Uh, they thought it was only unleavened bread that they should use. Eastern churches also allowed their priests to get married. Um, Western churches insisted on celibacy for their priests. And so that was, um, that was a difference too. And I don't know why everybody didn't defect over to the East, but whatever, they didn't. And so there you go. Um, there's also a controversy. Uh, this was a kind of a big controversy during the 8th and 9th centuries regarding the use of icons or images in worship. This is called uh, the iconoclastic controversy. Uh, so an iconoclast is somebody who's against the use of icons in, as objects of worship. Um, and so probably most of us are iconoclasts in this room since we're, we're Protestants. But um, in the early church, the idea of making and um, worshiping a portrait of Christ was always opposed. They did not do this. Um, that's why we don't have any portraits or pictures of Jesus from that time period, from the time period in which he lived. We don't actually have a clear representation of what Jesus actually looked like because nobody ever painted his picture or those who had living memory of him didn't encourage that to happen. But as time goes on, um, as the centuries go on, more and more people are beginning to create artwork uh, and those that artwork is starting to be used steadily and surely in in uh, certain worship contexts, and it eventually gains a lot of popularity. So that by the end of the sixth century and into the seventh century, um, the, these things have just become acceptable. But by the eighth and ninth centuries, people are starting to ask the question: Is that actually appropriate? Uh, so here's an example of an icon. If you've never seen one before, I'm sure you've all seen pictures like this, artwork like this. Uh, I think that's Mary, and then that's Jesus on the on the right there. But um, these this would be kind of a Greek Orthodox uh, form of artwork rather than the Western side of it. But these would be used as ways to worship, and people in the Eastern Orthodox Church would kiss these pictures and almost worship them and really functionally worship them, um, they would say, to be fair to them, that they're not worshiping the image, but the image is invoking thoughts of Jesus, and so it's a tool for them to use, uh, use in worship. But I've got problems with that. So, um, so eventually, uh, the East gets an emperor named Leo III, and he was an iconoclast. And he declares that the worship of religious images uh, is heretical and idolatrous. And as a Protestant, I say yes and amen to Emperor Leo. Way to go. Uh, but that's not very long-lived. Um, a lot of, at the time, a lot of the Eastern emperors, or Eastern bishops, rather, cooperate with the emperor's rule. Um, but the Western church is just like all the way in on religious images. They're... they're they don't have any controversy about it. Uh, and so in the East, there was kind of this back and forth argument. Some emperors would be okay with it. Some bishops would be okay with it. Some not. And it was sort of this back and forth between using icons and not using icons in the Eastern portion of the church until 843. In 843, 
uh, Empress Theodora uh, finally and well, fully and finally restored icon worship. Um, it's actually, there's still an event that the Eastern Orthodox Church celebrates today. They call it the Feast of Orthodoxy, which I find ironic. Um, but it's the Feast of Orthodoxy, and they commemorate Theodora's uh, proclamation that these images are cool to, to worship. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, for their part, has always consistently been in favor of using icons in worship. That's why when you walk into a Catholic church, you see statues of saints and images and pictures, and, and uh, Jesus is on the cross in, in Catholic churches. And when you walk into a Protestant church, uh, you don't have a lot of that. Now, I, there's exceptions. There are definitely exceptions because not all Protestants believe that the use of images and icons is wrong in worship. Um, but many of the Protestant reformers were iconoclasts, and they, they saw this as an uh, uh, idolatrous way to worship. And so there's a lot of Protestant churches that, that don't do this. And most Protestant churches you walk into, you see a cross, but you don't see Jesus on the cross. Uh, and part of that's because we want to avoid the, the icon and we want to avoid also the misconception that Jesus is still on the cross, which in a Roman Catholic theology, that's what's happening. You're re-crucifying Jesus every Sunday, which we talked about, I think, last week or the week before. We talked about how Pope Gregory uh, the Great uh, decided that the Mass was uh, a way for us to re-crucify Jesus every, every time we gather. And um, so that, that was not the original view of the Christian church. It came about later on in the Middle Ages. But Protestant churches obviously don't agree with that theologically. So that's why you don't have Jesus on the cross in most uh, churches of Protestant shape. So there you go. Um, but here's the most contentious issue for the Great Schism. The, the most contentious issue of all was the conflict uh, that ultimately, and the conflict that ultimately brought about the Great Schism was the issue of authority, which is going to be, interestingly, going to be the same issue that brings about the Protestant Reformation as well, because the question is whether the Pope in Rome held power over the patriarchs in the East. Did the Pope, uh, did the Bishop of Rome have the authority to tell the, the bishops in Constantinople and other cities in the East what to do? And this becomes the main issue. And there were, really, uh, there were really two issues that brought this to a head. One was the Philoquy uh, controversy, which is really hard to say. I'm going to avoid saying it. But Philoquy is uh, a Latin word which means um, and the son. It's S-O-N. Um, <laughs> without getting, I mean, I went on a YouTube rabbit hole today on, the, on this controversy because I wasn't really super familiar with it. It's wild. Um, but basically what happened is in the Nicene Creed, there is um, the original line talking about the Holy Spirit says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And everybody agreed to that. Everybody was happy to say that the Father sends the Holy Spirit. But at one point in time, one of the popes decides we're going to add a line that from the Father and the Son, philoquy. And they put this one word, this one Latin word that we, get, that we translate into three English words, um, into the Nicene Creed without bringing the council together, without asking the, the East for their opinion, 
without doing any of that, they just sort of put it in there. And then they impose that on the rest of the church and say, here, you have to believe this. Now, there, there are some, I mean, we can get really lost in theological weeds here, but the reason uh, to look at it from the most generous perspective that the Pope would do this was, again, to protect the church from the Arian controversy. Basically, he's trying to elevate Jesus or, or portray Jesus as fully God, equal with the Father, so he sends the Spirit with the Father. The Father and the Son send the Spirit because he's trying to basically guard the doctrine of the divinity of Christ, which is obviously good. We want to defend the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. Jesus is God. That's all. We all agree with that. Uh, the Eastern Church agreed that Jesus was God, and that wasn't really an issue at this point. But the Eastern Church saw it as, uh, first of all, an affront uh, to their to their leadership and their their voice in the church. But they also saw it as a theological issue because they thought that it would actually undermine the divinity of the Holy Spirit from their point of view. That to say that the Holy Spirit is sent by both the Father and the Son puts him as like the little the little guy in, in the in the Trinity. And they're like, we're, we're threatening to see the Spirit as lesser than the Father and the Son at that point. So again, it can get really kind of wild. But, but that's, the, that's the central issue is that the Eastern Church is like, no, you can't just change a creed that we've all agreed to just because you want to. So the Philoquy controversy was a, was a big deal. But what, what really hit the nail on the head uh, or what really was, I guess, the last straw that broke the camel's back is probably a better analogy, was uh, th- there was some, some issue in southern Italy where um, the, the West, like there was an army, I think the, I can't remember if it was the, the, the uh, Franks or, or the, Nor- the Norman invasion or something. There was a group that came down, kind of took over. They were a Western army and they like outlaw the uh, the worship of the churches in Greek, and so they say you have to do it in Latin, and that really ticked off the East because they're like, how how dare you tell us we can't worship in Greek? And so the Pope in Rome basically sends his his like order to say you have to do this, you have to listen to these guys, and they just lost it at that point. They were like, you cannot tell us that we can't do our church service in Greek. We that we have to do it in Latin. We're not doing this. So they burn the papal order in front of everybody, and then they excommunicate the Pope in Rome, and the, and the Pope excommunicates them, and everybody gets excommunicated, and the East-West schism was sealed. So I can't resist. I had to do this. Uh, this is basically what is happening at the end of, of it all. So you, you get excommunicated, you get excommunicated, everybody's excommunicated. So sorry, I just had to do it. Um, now, for what it's worth, there have been modern attempts in, in recent uh, decades um, to, to bridge the relationship between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, this didn't happen until the 20th century in the 1960s uh, during the Vatican II Council. This was starting to, to happen. And by the, by the 20th century, so a long time uh, from when it all started, relations between these two branches had improved enough where they could have some productive talks and and try to heal some of the differences. Um, 
basically there was dialogue between the leaders of of these two churches. They they adopted the Catholic Orthodox Joint Declaration of 1965. Uh, the Vatican Council uh, ratified it, and there was a special ceremony in Constantinople, which is the the main city for the Eastern Orthodox Church. They ratified it. And so the declaration basically just recognizes the validity of the sacraments in each of these churches uh, because they were both like, you guys don't count, you're not doing it right. And so they've kind of nulled that issue. And then they also removed the mutual excommunications. So that was nice of them. They were just like, all right, I guess you guys can come back in. Um, And, you know, things things have happened that, are, that have been positive in that direction. We'll get to Vatican II in the next session of the next block of church history towards the end there. But um, that Vatican II was a, was a positive thing, I think, largely, although there's still a lot of areas they need to uh, change in my view. But um, okay, so all of that, you know, they've tried to make some, some healing there, it's, but it hasn't quite gotten all the way there because there's still a lot of issues, major issues that remain unsolved. Uh, I don't know if it'll ever actually be completely solved. East and West have a lot of issues theologically with each other, politically and liturgically. So, um, yeah, so it's it's kind of a interesting thing there. But that is the Great Schism in a nutshell. And again, there's a, there's a lot more we could talk about with the Great Schism. Um, you, you just... Just go on on YouTube and you can watch crazy videos about it. And if you care to do that, but um, it's a lot. So, any questions initially here? I know we just ra- I'm trying to rapid fire through some of this, uh, but um, if there's anything that's needing to be said, there we can. No, okay. Well, let's talk about the Crusades. This is going to be fun. Um, Crusades are probably the most recognizable situation or event in history, particularly the Middle Ages. I don't know a single person who doesn't know about the Crusades or has at least heard of the Crusades. Um, so let's talk about first, what is the modern, like our day and age interpretation of the Crusades? I want to just kind of lay out, because you're probably familiar with this interpretation. It's the way I was taught about the Crusades. Um, and, and I'm just going to say, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to challenge a little bit of this, this narrative. But um, the modern interpretation of the Crusades says that they were a series of holy wars, which is true. Um, and they were against Islam. That's also true. But they, were, but they would also say that they were led by power-mad popes who fought by and were fought by religious fanatics. Uh, that's some of the questions I'm going to have. But... The Crusades are often framed as the epitome of self-righteousness and tolerance, um, a black stain on the history of the church in particular and Western civilization in general, right? Crusaders are kind of seen as a breed of proto-imperialists who, you know, basically introduce Western aggression into a peaceful Middle East and then deform and destroy this enlightened Muslim culture leaving it in ruins. And that's essentially how it's framed, right? That basically the West came in and ruined this, this glorious, beautiful thing that was happening in the Middle East. And, and the, the Crusades are a huge blight on the, on the face of the church. Um, 
I'm not sure that that's an accurate portrayal. Now, I'm going to give you at the end of this section, I'm going to give you a couple books that you can read if you're interested in this. Uh, one book is from the perspective of that. It's going to, he's going to make his case for the Crusades being monstrous and, and horrible. And the other book is going to be uh, basically on the exact opposite extreme and almost be like the Crusades were the best thing that ever happened. And I'm going to say somewhere in between those two books. Okay, I've, I've read the one that was like glowing about the Crusades and I've, I have not read the one. I've read uh, parts of the one that is, is very negative towards it. But um, I, you guys can judge for yourselves on all this. But I'm going to give you my view on it. And I, I don't think that the, the way that it's, public or popularly uh, described is the whole story. Uh, I'm going to say right on the gate here that there were certainly tragic things that happened during the Crusades. There were bad things that happened. But that's true in every war. Every war has bad things that happen, right? And and we, we, we should actually not want to see war happen in any context. Um, unless it's absolutely necessary, right? Like that should be the last resort. And, um, and yet, even though there were things that happened during the Crusades that we can look at and go, that was bad, um, we, we shouldn't necessarily be persuaded that those incidents are purely motivated by power-hungry, land-grabbing Christians who are being mean to innocent, kind Arab people. I, I actually think that that is all a very re- revisionistic and oversimplified situation. Instead, I think that the Crusades were motivated by a genuine aggression that was happening from the, from the Arab world at that time. And, and so I, I want to frame kind of the historical context here so that maybe we can have a little bit more uh, understanding about the Crusades. Um, but just, with the, just as with the Great Schism just like with everything in history, the Crusades are a product of their time. Uh, and the events that were taking place that led up to the Crusades and the, the events that followed were taking place in a real world, a real world with a lot of problems and a lot of confusion. And it's easy for us as 21st century people to look back on these things through a lens of modern sensibilities and pronounce judgment on all those people. And, and I think, just honestly, I think there's a problem in, in our modern day of trying to retroactively impose on predecessors the values that we have. I don't think we can do that. I don't think we should do that. We, we have these same issues with, with uh, those who advocated for slavery in the U.S. South, which was obviously an evil. We all agree with that. But to say that they should have done X, Y, Z because we understand X, Y, Z is not fair and it's not, it's not reality. And, and just imagine what our future people are going to say about us, right? Because we're, we're, yeah, we're in the same boat. So we'll get into that too. But let's talk about the Crusades. What led to it? How did it happen? Uh, and again, like the Crusades was actually a really long period of time. There were seven Crusades. We're only going to really talk about the first. Uh, and again, you can dig into the, the rest of it as you have time. But uh, the Crusades officially begin in the year 1054. But the context for the Crusades started much, much earlier. 
back in the 600s, actually, is where all this can kind of stem from. Just like the Great Schism didn't happen in the exact year that it happened. It was a build-up to a lot of centuries of problems. So it is with the, with the Crusades. Um, in the 600s, out of Arabia, the, the nation of Arabia, um, the, which was a forgotten corner of the world, it really wasn't um, largely cared about. It was pretty much just ignored by the Roman and the Persian empires. Um, there was, out of that in the 600s, a wave of conquest that arose that ultimately threatened to engulf the world. And in a few years, the Persian Empire had completely vanished from the earth, and many of the ancient Roman territories were in Arab hands. And so the driving force in this uh, was a guy that you're all probably familiar with, a guy named Muhammad. His, his, um, his name is, of course, famous today. He's, he's the founder of Islam. He was an Arab merchant, and he in his life had come into contact with uh, Judaism and some forms of Christianity, but the forms of Christianity he was exposed to were more heretical forms, um, and, and they, they weren't really the true, true Christianity, I don't think. But he, he kind of assessed Judaism, he assessed Christianity as he understood it, um, and was just like, no, these are not the answer. And so he ends up claiming that the angel Gabriel... Uh, came to him and instructed him to form a true religion. And so in the year 622, this begins the, the Muslim era. Um, and he's in, at this point in time, he's in the city of Medina. And uh, he there fi- founds the first Muslim community. But then over time, he leads his followers uh, on a military campaign that eventually gives them control over a city called Mecca, and at that point, once he takes Mecca, he declares that all of his former enemies are forgiven, but there's still work to be done because idols need to be overthrown. And so um, he goes on uh, quite a, a long uh, you know, spree to, to take over cities and to bring them under, under his rule. But by the time of his death in 632, uh, a major part of Arabia was in Muslim hands. Then, after he dies, leadership passes on to the caliphs, uh, which is an Arabic word for successor. And that's where things really begin to take off. Uh, his successor was Abu Bakr. Uh, he was kind of in charge from 634 to, 6, uh, 34 to 644 for those 10 years. And um, by, in that 10-year period, power over Arabia was consolidated and Muslims achieved victory over even some of the Byzantine armies, the Eastern Empire armies. So that's also called the Byzantine Empire. So from there, once they start to kind of get into the eastern part of the Roman Empire, they go to Syria and they take over Damascus by 635. And then they take over Jerusalem by 638. And then by 640, they're in charge of the entire region of what we call Palestine, the Gaza Strip, all those all, the, all of that part of the world. Then they eventually get into Egypt and they take the city of Alexandria, which if you remember, Jerusalem and Alexandria are two of the cities that make up the five kind of main, main centers of Christianity. So by 642, they have 
all of they have Jerusalem, they have Alexandria, they have all of uh, Damascus, and all these. I mean, they've they have just done an incredible job of taking control of these these places. Um, by the end of the seventh century, continuing forward here, the the Arabs had control over much of the Eastern Byzantine empire and we're continuing to advance and so here's the here's the key thing i want us to understand as we put the the crusades in historical context there were legitimate fears that the west would be invaded next i mean just think about this over this very short period of time relatively speaking um, you've got a small group of people from arabia who now are in control of a vast amount of land so fast-forwarding there to the 11th century, where we get to the Crusades, Christians at that time were not paranoid fanatics, like we're, we're often told. Um, the, the Muslims really were doing a great job of taking over territories, and there was a real fear that they were going to take over their territory in the West. So in that context, we can start to make sense of what's happening with the Crusades. Um, This was a response of more than four centuries of conquest in which the Muslims had captured, by this point, two-thirds of the old Christian world. And at some point, Christianity as a faith and the West as a culture had to defend itself or else be subsumed by Islam. And the Crusades were that defense. So again, I think, um, well, I'll get into some of the specific things here in just a bit, but that's really the context of this situation is there's, there's a real genuine belief that if, if they just continue letting Islam do its thing, the West is going to be gone. It's all, it's all going to disappear. So enter in the Crusades, uh, which officially begin when Pope Urban II calls upon the Knights of Christendom to push back the conquests of Islam at the Council of Claremont in 1095. Now, the Pope ends up giving, at this council, a very graphic speech. Uh, I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to read the speech for you. You can look it up if you want. It's, it's pretty gruesome. And the fact that it's so gruesome uh, has led some modern historians to, to suspect that it was propaganda or he was just making this up. Uh, he was just trying to create a, a, a rise out of people. I don't know the answer to that, honestly, because I wasn't there, and I obviously don't know what was really going on. But he details uh, torture, rape, murder uh, of, of Christians, and the defilement of churches and holy places um, committed by the Arabs. And so whether that all was true, whether his depiction of what was happening is all 100% factual or whether he was exaggerating, we don't know for certain. And of course, historians are split on that. And and some will say he was 100% right and some will say he was 100% wrong. And again, the truth is probably somewhere in between those two things. Um, But after his speech, he calls to arms uh, many thousands of soldiers and they take up the vow to prepare for war and to defend Christendom. As Urban ended his impassioned appeal, there, they say there was a, a roar that rose from the multitude of, of people at this meeting, which essentially say, God wills, wills it. God wills it. 
And that was, that was what uh, became the rallying cry for the Crusades, is that God wants us to do this. So again, we're, we're talking about things that happened a long time ago. Uh, so how much of this is legend and how much of this is, is fact, we don't know, but we're just going off what we've got. Um, but let me just make this point before we get into some of, the, some of what happened in the First Crusade. I think it's worth remembering that at this point in history, there was no separation of church and state. And the church and the state had been married since the crowning of Charlemagne in 800, which we saw last week, that Charlemagne becomes the first uh, Holy Roman Emperor. He is crowned by the Pope, <clears throat> coronated by the Pope. And there was a marriage between the church and the state at that point. And there, of course, there had been prior to that as well with Constantine. Um, but in the Middle Ages, they are, they are living in a point, at a point where there is no distinction in their minds between the church and the state. So while we can certainly see and frame the Crusades as a religious war, and it was in some ways, it was also a political war and a territorial war. And I, I think one of the reasons why today the Crusades are seen so distastefully or why we have, where we framed it the way we have as this land grabbing church, crazy Pope guy and all these things is because of the religious dimension, right? To us, it sounds like Christians versus Muslims and all that. And that's, that's how it's framed. It's like, well, the Christians are mean and the Muslims are just trying to live their best life and all these things. And, and we, we, are, we find it very, obviously in our modern day, we find it very distasteful to see religion be the cause of war. But, but that's because we're looking at it through modern eyes. We're looking at it through a lens of, of separation of church and state. We're looking at this through our world, which understands that the state does its thing and the church does its thing and these things shouldn't be interconnected. But that's because we have the benefit of hundreds and hundreds of years and change that has happened in civilization to get us there. And I think largely for the good. And I said last week, I think separation of church and state is the right thing. We want the, the state to do what it can to protect people's liberties and rights. And the church should be generally left alone beyond that. But we, whenever we read this, these things through that lens, of course, we're going to see it as, oh my goodness, these mean Christians who are doing all of this and they had the upper hand and they were just mistreating all these poor Muslims. And it's like, that's not actually what was happening. Uh, that's, that's not actually the case. And again, the whole situation isn't framed as Christianity. It was framed as this is, this is just where we live. This is the world we live in. And if we let it get taken over, we're doomed. And I think we would understand that if we were framing this through the lens of, okay, let's say for some crazy reason, Canada got the idea to invade America, which is, of course, laughable, right? But they come across the border. We're all fighting for our land because this is our land. This is where we live. We don't want to be doing this, right? We all get that territorial wars exist. Um, and that's largely what the Crusades were. They were. It was a territorial war more than anything. And yes, it was framed and mixed up with Christianity. Of course it was because that's how the whole world was at that time. It was all mixed up. And I think that that's, that's the problem, ultimately, is that Christianity and, and the state were married to begin with, and they shouldn't have been. But obviously, you can't rewrite history. That's what happened. Okay, 
So I just wanted to frame that. But let's talk about the first crusade. And again, there were seven crusades ultimately. Um, but the first was the only one that had any measure of success, really, of all the crusades. Uh, the first crusade was composed of feudal nobles, kind of these upper, upper class people sending their sons into battle from France, Germany, southern Italy. Um, it was mostly the wealthy landholding people that, that fought this, this battle, uh, these wars. And the first crusade was um, a relatively successful one. They, they crossed over um, into Constantinople. They were able to push back uh, the Arab armies. There were only about 5,000 of them in, this, in, the, crusade, in the first crusade, um, 5,000 know, Westerners. And uh, ultimately, they overcame the resistance. And, um, and that part of that was because the Arabs were no longer united. There was some internal conflict that was happening on their side of the, the battle as well. So uh, overall, the First Crusade was successful in that it was able to recapture Jerusalem. So that was a win for, for the West at that time. They were able to regain control of the city of Jerusalem. Um, but the subsequent Crusades... Uh, were much less than successful. They, they really were not successful at all. Uh, they were able to hold control of Jerusalem for about 100 years, but then they eventually lost that again as well. And pretty soon, they, they basically ended up where they started. They, they just did not have um, much success. And, and I think there's a number of things, number of factors there that you could look at and explore. But the Ultimately, I think that um, the Crusades was intentionally meant to help the Eastern Empire retake their land and protect the West from losing land. And I think from one standpoint, the Crusades go down as as a failure because they didn't really help the Eastern Empire retake their land. They they briefly, briefly for 100 years, got them Jerusalem back, but... Other than that, they lost that and pretty much never regained control of the East. Um, but they were successful, at least in being able to hold most of the West. Um, and so, so that was, um, I guess, good in that sense. But um, again, when you read historians on this, there are, there's just such a mixed bag because nobody really wants, well, there's one guy that I found that wants to come out and say that the Crusades were good, and I'll share his book with you. But um, most are kind of tentative about doing that, and that's because there's a lot of things that happened in the Crusades that aren't good. Um, but one historian who I think takes a decent middle approach is a guy named Bruce Shelley. Uh, he's, he's a Christian historian, uh, wrote a book on church history. He's with the Lord now, I believe. Uh, but he wrote that, uh, he says, perhaps the most significant result of the Crusades was the added splendor that they brought to the papacy. That, that if, you're, if you're defining success by the Crusades, and this is just my, my, what I'm saying uh, to him, uh, is if, he, if, if we're defining success as in how does the papacy work out or how is the Pope going to do in this, the Pope's won. The Pope's did really well during this, for sure. Um, he goes on to say, Bruce Shelley goes on to say, not only did a Pope, Urban II, launch the First Crusade, but the popes throughout the period were the primary inspiration for fresh uh, exhibitions. Um, 
they, 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 not the emperors, strove to unite Christendom against Islam. The new military orders and the new bishops in the Holy Land and those in Constantinople for a time were under papal protection and service. The Holy War was the papacy reaching for universal sovereignty, one united church, west and east. So Shelley's perspective is that the the popes really, really grew in power and authority uh, and influence during the Crusades and that they they won, in a sense, for themselves and for the office. But as a whole, the Crusades were really probably a failure of, of the objective that they were set out to do, which was to retake the East for uh, Constantinople. <clears throat> they didn't accomplish that. So again, you can do the deep dive, but here's two of the books. Um, so the first one is God's Battalions by Rodney Stark. I read that one. Uh, uh, I think actually listened to it on audiobook. Um, I think during COVID, I just had time to do stuff. So listened to that. And that was like basically glowingly in favor of the Crusades. Uh, the subtitle is A Case for the Crusades. I think Rodney Stark, I really like Rodney Stark. He wrote The, the Rise of Christianity, which was a book I shared in the first class of this series uh, on how the church grew from basically, uh, you know, a very small group of people in, Jude, in Jerusalem to you know, the, the massive religion that it is. That's a great book. Um, this one I was less than, you know, wowed by because I, I felt like, I was like, Rodney, just take it down a notch, man. Just just a little bit. Like, it's okay if you like the Crusades, but like, just don't freak out so much. Um, but, so that's one. I mean, it's, it's a good read. It's an easy read, relatively speaking. The other one is by uh, Steve Russeman called The History of the Crusades uh, 3. Uh, and this one is... Basically, if you want a, an account of how the Crusades are the most evil thing that's ever happened in the history of the world, Steve's your guy. So you can, you can take that, and I would say, you know, read both if you want, and then find somewhere in between the two, and that's probably more accurate. Okay, so those are just a couple of resources if you're interested in that. But let's, let's wrap this up with just uh, recapping a couple things. Uh, I want to talk about the schism and... And then I want to talk about the Crusades. But what I want to do is just give you a couple of things that I'm thinking about on both of these events and what they mean for the church today. Um, So with the Great Schism, it was the first major split in the Christian church. But obviously, we know it's not going to be the last. Um, And I think in some regard, this should make us sad as Christians. We live in a fallen world and because of that, we see division. I don't think that division is what, what the Lord ultimately wants for his church. But as a Protestant, okay, I'm a Protestant. You're, you're probably a Protestant too if you're in this room. Maybe you're not. But um, if you're a Protestant, the very name comes from protest, okay, um, and we're going to talk about the Protestant Reformation in a couple, well, a few weeks once we get back into the second part of this class. But I, I think there is a point in which we have to care about sound doctrine over some faux unity. Um, I, I believe that unity for the sake of unity um, is not the chief purpose of life. I, I think... I don't think that's the goal. I I think that sound doctrine, biblical truth is the goal. 
And if unity can be found around that truth, then, then of course we should pursue it in whatever ways we can. Um, but, but I don't think that we should, should just try to kumbaya our way through life. I think there's a sense in which we have to recognize um, that there are some, some who will just reject what is biblically true. And obviously, as a Protestant, I'm, I'm, I'm in that camp. So, um, but the verse that I, the, the passage I go to to think about this is John 17, 17 to 21. This is where Jesus is praying towards the end of his life, just before the cross. Um, and he's asking God the Father to unify his people. In this, in this section, he's transitioning from praying for his apostles, the 12 apostles, to praying for, for us. And what he says here is this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these, his apostles only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which is us, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus obviously is praying for unity among his believers. And that's a, that's a great thing um, that we should pursue. But don't miss what he says at the start of this section. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And I think one of the things that we, we, we miss at times in all of our discussions of unity is the issue of truth. Um, because there can't, act, there can't actually be true unity apart from the truth of God's word. It's not real unity. Now, admittedly, there are a lot of things in the East-West schism that they fought about that were not that important in the grand scheme of things. And it is true that Christians today, particularly the Protestant branch of Christians, divide over things that are really silly and unimportant. And I, I can fully get behind you. I had a professor in graduate school who was, who was a real advocate for the fact that denominations are sinful uh, because they're divisive, and yet there's no turning back the clock, right? We can't change what's happened in history, but that we shouldn't be like rah-rahing for all of these new denominations or, or anything like that. We should be somewhat sad that these things um, have divided us over silly things, things that are less than central. But um, where there is a real major issue, there may have to be a split. And that's, that's where we've got to use biblical wisdom. Uh, there's another great book um, called uh, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, um, written by a guy named uh, Dane Ortland, I believe. No, Gavin Ortland. There's three Ortlands that, that all are writing. Um, Ray Ortland, and then there's his two sons, Dane and, and uh, Gavin. Gavin wrote uh, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And that is one of the best modern books on the issue of how do we decide what is, what is worth fighting over, in a sense, or arguing about, or splitting over, and what things do we just need to let go? And so if you ever want to dig into that subject more, I'd highly recommend that book. But I, I think that that's one thing that the, that the schism should teach us, is that we live in a fallen world, and as a result, there's going to be division. Um, but that's not the goal. That should never be the goal. And I, and I for one, can be grateful that the, that the Pope and the, 
and the Patriarch of Constantinople are today, in our modern day, are actually trying to figure out a way to come back together. Now, I don't think they ever will completely come back together. Uh, you know, you can't put the toothpaste back in the bottle, you know, but, but they're working on it, and they've made some progress in that, which is, I think, commendable. Maybe, the, maybe Rome should work on the Protestant thing, too, a little bit more, but that's neither here nor there. Um, uh, by reforming, that's what they should do, is come along, come to our side. But um, whatever, that's unbiased. All right, well, let's, let me talk about the Crusades a little bit, too, and just what we can learn from it. Um, there's a couple things that I think we should remember that the, that the popes during the Crusades clearly didn't know or had forgotten. Um, the first thing is this, that Christianity's highest joys are not guaranteed by possession of special places. Our goal is not to own or, or have possession of particular places. It, the, the land, I, I really do believe that the land is, uh, of Israel is a, is a type of the, the peace and security and joy we have in Christ. And, and that that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. That's my view. Now, you can disagree with that. But I, I don't think that our highest joy should be found or pursued in finding special places. And the second thing that we should remember is that the sword is not God's way to extend the kingdom of Christ. Uh, missionary efforts and church planting and loving our neighbors and preaching the gospel, those are the ways that God wants to grow his church, not through like, actual like, military conquest. And, and, and I don't think that anybody today, any Christian today, or very, if, they are, if they're out there, they're the extreme minority, that, that would be advocating for some sort of holy war uh, to take over lands or locations. But I do think we do, uh, I think we stumble in some similar ways um, particularly when we believe that Christ's kingdom is expanded by political power. I think that the, the, Christ, the conservative Christian church has in some sense lost sight of what's really going on here when we, put, when we bank all of our hopes in some political candidate. It's like, come on, guys. Like, Yes, you can vote for whoever you believe will be the best person to run the country, but that is not our hope. That should never be our hope. And, uh, and so we, we should just be mindful that there's, there's obviously not the same degree of extreme in our day on this issue, but uh, there's still that tendency in us to go, political power is good, we want it. But actually what we've learned in this class is that the church thrives not when it's in power, but actually when it's under opposition. And so we should probably think about that a little more at times. The other thing that the, the, the counter, the balance to that of what I've just said is that I also think we need to think less like modern people and not condemn the crusaders outright as if they're just like the worst humans who ever lived. They were people living in their time. And um, again, we have to remember there's no concept in their minds of separation of church and state. They, we shouldn't hold them to that standard. And, and so for them, the, the military conquest of retaking what they would call Christian lands from the Arabs makes perfect sense. To them, it's not even like a question because it's like this is our land. This is, this is where we, we live. And yes, they're framing it under Christendom, which we can argue is a problem. And I think it was. 
but they don't they didn't know what they didn't know they were they were living in the world they were living in and so i think it is wildly unfair for us uh, to judge people in a different time for not holding our modern sensibilities and and so there's a there's a thing that cs lewis talks about that i think is really helpful to think about this um, and that is we need to guard ourselves against what he, he called chronological snobbery. And what he meant by that was that thinking that art or science or anything from an earlier time is inherently inferior to that of the present. Uh, that's what he meant by chronological snobbery. Basically looking at anything that's old and saying, oh, that's old, ick, we don't need that. It's, we have it better. We're, we're smarter, we're better. And C.S. Lewis, uh, for, for his part, was consistently trying to help Christians in a modern world uh, realize that we actually don't know everything uh, as much as we think we know. Uh, We don't know everything, and there are many things that we can actually learn from people who came before us. Now, Lewis was uh, clearly biased on this because this is the world he lived in, his actual day job when he wasn't writing books and doing all the things we know him for. He was the professor of medieval literature uh, at Oxford University. So obviously he values the medieval time and the, the, the ancient uh, civilizations. But that doesn't mean he's wrong, right? He's clearly he's biased. He has a, he has a favor. Uh, he's, he favors uh, you know, the past, sure. But that doesn't mean he's wrong in this, and I think he's actually right. Um, and so one of the things that he suggested to, to people uh, to think about this is he would say that if you ever read a new book, make sure you read an old book before you read another new book. So he's, he's not against reading new books. He was just like, but you've got to balance this with getting older people and dead people, people who have lived long before us, to speak into our lives. Um, so just, just as a, from a really practical standpoint, I want us to think about this. Because we, we can get up on our high horse and look down at the crusaders and go, ah, oh, look at how brutal they were. Look at how terrible they were. Look at how ignorant they were. Whatever, right? Um, but the question is, is, are we really better? Do we really think we're better or more intelligent than our medi- medieval predecessors? I don't think we are. Like We can wag our fingers at them, um, but don't we still fight wars that are questionable and have suspect reasons? Like, don't, I think historically we can even just look at our recent past and go, really? Are we, are we really better than them? Are, are we less violent than they are? We're less violent maybe openly, but we still practice great deals of violence in our country. The fact that we're a country that has for, for many years legalized the killing of unborn children shows that we're not as civilized as we, as we think we are. And I think we just need to, to stop feeling morally superior to older generations and get off our high horse and have some humility and recognize that we have things to learn from them and as, as much as you know, if they could, you know, get in a time machine and learn from us, they could do that too, right? There's obviously blind spots that they had, but, but we have our blind spots too. And so learning from the past helps us recognize uh, where we can, where we can um, become more Christ-like and, and recognize the flaws of our ancestors so that hopefully we don't continue to repeat all of their, their mistakes. And that's the benefit of 
living in the future versus the time that they were living, right? Um, but our but our you know future descendants will have the same privilege to look at us and go, oh, don't want to do that. Um, so so there you go. Any questions about any of that um, or thoughts? Uh, I'll turn off this if if we uh, if we want to talk a little bit. Otherwise, we can head on our way out.